Good morning. Today is Wednesday, September 14th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'm glad you've tuned in. Whether it's over the air, online at kfuo.org or through the KFUO app, or maybe even using your favorite podcasting app. However you listen, settle in, open your hearts and your minds, we're about to begin. But first, Thy Strong Word is graciously underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. If you have questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, friends, we've arrived back in Corinth today. Located in southern Greece between Olympia and Athens, ancient Corinth is a powerful and wealthy city-state and a crossroads of trade. That was due in no small part to it being located between the Corinthian and Saronic Gulfs, with one harbor for trade with Asia and another for trade with Italy and beyond, not to mention the many inland routes. Now, as we've already heard, the Apostle Paul has been moved to write this first letter to the Corinthian Christians because disunity and sinful practices have taken hold among the congregants. The people in this congregation, especially the Greeks, would have placed great value on things like authority and wealth and status, even if they didn't have any of those things. Well, in today's reading from chapter 4, he speaks about his role. He speaks about his authority as an apostle, but he frames it in all the hardships that the apostles have faced something that would have stood in stark contrast to the desires of some of the Corinthians. He then ends this section with a warning, a warning that he might just visit soon. He certainly desires to, and if he does, he can come with the rod or with the spirit of grace. He desires the latter. Well, this morning, to help us digest St. Paul's teachings, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, the Reverend George Murdaugh. He's a pastor emeritus currently living and serving in Birmingham, Alabama. Pastor Murdaugh, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Oh, thank you very much. Good morning. This is the first time meeting you. I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, I know you're pastor emeritus. Uh, How long has that been? And what are you still doing? Because I know that pastors never really retire. They just get reassigned. So I'm sure you're still active in ministry. Tell me a little bit about how that looks. Yeah, well, I'm I'm emeritus pastor from the Florida, Georgia district, but I'm in the Southern district. I started my ministry in the LCMS in, in the Southern district. I'm from Arkansas originally. And uh, uh, then uh, did my ministry in Louisiana, Mississippi, and places like that. So uh, I'm back in Birmingham. Uh, my wife and I here uh, moved here about a year ago, uh, close to our daughter. And I'm involved in ministry at First Lutheran Church in Birmingham. And I'm involved there currently with uh, leading the uh, Mission Day uh, book on God's, uh, on God's mission with the congregational leadership there. 
and then uh, also involved there in the preaching rotation since they're without a, out a pastor right now. And um, also uh, getting involved in uh, establishing some sort of outreach to the Hispanic community. So that's what I'm kind of uh, working on right now. Well, it sounds like that you are just as busy or busier with pastoral duties now that you've retired. We're so thankful for our pastors who, even after becoming emeriti, continue to serve God's church in so many ways. And really, in that way, pastors may retire from a congregation or for from full-time congregation life, but really, you never retire from the ministry. Thank you for your service, brother. Okay, well, we are going to begin, and our text for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to read just the first five verses to get us started, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. All right, brother. He begins this section with saying, this is how one should regard us. And then he says, servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. But who is us? Who is he referring to here besides himself? Well, the us is um, not only himself as an, as an apostle and the apostolic uh, uh, man that is uh, sharing the good news throughout the world, but he's also talking about all the communities of the faith uh, that have been established uh, since the time of the ascension. Uh, and uh, so it'd be himself and the people of uh, the congregation there in Corinth. So he's saying that, you know, people should regard them as stewards of the mysteries of God. And this extends, I would say, beyond just the apostles into the, the office of public ministry or the office of holy ministry, however you want to talk about it, but stewards of mysteries of God. You know, starting with there, yeah, let's, let's look into that. You know, what does it mean to be a steward of the mystery of God? This seems like a good thing, but then as he starts to describe what it feels like to be an apostle, he gets a little negative. He does. Well, the, the word uh, which is used there is uh, the household manager. It's the uh, oikonomos. And uh, that household manager, the, the steward, the household manager, we might refer to as the Meyer Domo, the, you know, maybe the, uh, the, the person that's in charge of keeping the household uh, running smoothly. Uh, but also in the, uh, the steward is the one who brings out what is needed when it's needed. Who, uh, also, the steward is the one who would oversee the other uh, servant, uh, minister. The, the word for servant there really can be minister as well. Uh, we're ministers of Christ and stewards of his mysteries. But um, in particular, the steward, that, uh, the mature uh, in the Christian faith, uh, as well as those in the pastoral office or in leadership offices like the elders or whatever, 
Uh, they are the ones who are responsible for bringing out those things of God, which are essential for salvation, and those things of God that are to be followed or, or imitated amongst the people, especially in Corinth, where there seemed to be a lot of uh, a lot of vying for leadership, vying for importance among the five different factions. And so in that situation, he's saying, look, we're all servants. We're all to be stewards in these mysteries. So that's the main thing. That's his, that's his approach at, at this point in, in chapter four, which he'll elaborate on throughout the, the letter. Him beginning with this idea, though, about being judged. You know, I just got done reading Romans, and he's talking about, you know, how weaker and stronger Christians are not to judge one another, particularly stronger to the weaker. But here, he's talking about being judged in a different sense, at least it seems to me. He says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He doesn't judge himself. He looks to God for approval, not to man. But who is it that's judging him? Well, a human court would be those that are judging according to human standards. Uh, the word court there actually means day. Uh, that is um, the human day in court, so to speak. I don't, I don't care about my day in court among human beings, okay, because that's not where my, where the judgment of what I do, what I say, and how I'm living my life is going to ultimately be, be uh, uh, judged. It's going to be judged in the day of the Lord. And so it's, um, uh, it's when the Lord judges, when he comes, that day is the day that, that he is looking toward and that we should all look to, to, toward. Uh, he's echoing, of course, um, uh, Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, judge not that you be not judged. And that really had to do with judging brothers because the Sermon on the Mount is, is, was for disciples. So he called his disciples to himself. And when he was teaching there, he was, you know, the, the, the thing about judging in the church is we only have the one standard, the judge in the church. And that's by what has been revealed through the fruit of the Spirit and also through the work of Christ. And so um, when we start judging according to human standards in the church, uh, we can tend to get off base. And that's what was going on in Corinth. Too many people were uh, think, claiming that they had credentials greater than Paul's. And, uh, and so um, they would follow the ones with uh, better credentials. And that's not the point. The point is, who has the charism that was given to him for the bringing of the gospel to the Gentiles. And that was St. Paul, which he did marvelously, of course. And, um, and so he will leave judgment. So he doesn't even judge himself. I'm not going to judge myself about this. In other words, he's not going to enter into this confrontation or this dialogue or these contentions with the factions here because from the, from the start, they're off base. They're judging according to human standards. And he will not be judged that way. He doesn't even judge himself that way. Paul's looking for not approval of men, but approval of God. In verse 4, uh, pardon me, verse 5, he says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his uh, reward from God. I mean, I know it says condemnation, but in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So as you 
illustrated, there were other people vying for leadership in this congregation, and there were plenty of Corinthian Christians willing to follow others, Apollos and others. And so Paul is saying that the foundation is Christ, and whatever we build on that foundation, well, that is going to be judged. And so it seems like here his talking about judging is continuing that conversation from earlier, that he's not going to be judged by those who don't understand the true gospel. His judge will be God. And then each one will receive his con- commendation from God. Yeah. yeah, you got to be careful about that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> commendation from God is, um, is uh, you know, he, he says this in a different way, Ephesians 2.10. Your God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the works which God prepared beforehand that you should do. So our commendation is to the glory of God because we have done what God has given us to do, and uh, and, and and not depending on our own um, uh, our own selves, but rather on what God has done in and through us by the power of His Spirit, but the gifts which He has given us, which He mentions uh, again and again in His letters. Let's get some more verses under our belt so that we have more context to add to our discussion. Just a couple more, really. He says in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. We'll stop there in the middle of verse 8. So who's a, who's Apollos, brother? You know, he, he's mentioned Apollos several times. We've talked about it in previous episodes, but he keeps coming up again and again. So if someone's just tuning in today, who's this Apollos fellow? Apollos was introduced to Paul by um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, I believe. Uh, um, he is uh, one who came early into uh, believing um, through the, I, I, I think, through the uh, preaching ministry of Paul to believe in Christ, to become a Christian. And he became, uh, obviously, he was, a, he was a very engaging speaker and began to speak uh, about the things of Christ. And, uh, and it is Paul that arranged for his further instruction in the ministry. And apparently, he is someone who is assisting him along with Timothy. He'll mention Timothy later. Along with Timothy in this uh, ministry, which is not an easy one, uh, that he's having there in Corinth. And so uh, that's who who he is. He's someone who has become associated with Paul, who has kind of uh, become uh, mentored by Paul along the way uh, in his faith uh, and is assisting him apparently here in, in this ministry. We think about these ideas of, you know, there are leaders in churches, and it seems like everyone's wanting an audience. Everyone wants to influence people. In a previous episode, we, the pastor guest and I talked about the idea of influencers. There are people in this world who want to influence other people, and that's sort of their, their claim to fame. I just wonder, the influencers in Corinth, Apollos is one of them, but he's been given this task by Paul. He's a fellow evangelist. When when Apollo, when people say, well, I follow Apollos or I follow Paul, it's not necessarily something that Apollos has done or Timothy or Paul or anyone else. It's not as though they're 
looking for an audience, is it? I mean, when he talks about that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up against one another, he's speaking less to the leaders but more to the actual people in the congregation. Right. I mean, the, the idea is somehow um, there's a certain amount of ownership that congregations take, I think, um, uh, with regard to the pastoral office, either because they were the ones who led the leadership to call that pastor or they have a particular relationship with that pastor or what it might be. Uh, and, and they may, they may presume on that. You, you often hear it in a meeting will say, well, you know, pastor says, or, you know, this is what, pa-. and so they, they tend to glom on to one thing or another, uh, that will show them as being, you know, uh, close to the guy. And uh, what Paul is trying to say here is what you have received was through the word. It, it, we're vehicles. All we are vehicles for the word. And what you have received is Christ, Christ in you. This, this is not something that is uh, ours to dole out as we want to. Or, you know, we'll give it to these people, but not those. This is something that we preach freely to everyone that everyone may come to know the truth and be saved, as he'll say later in his letter to Timothy. And um, so, you know, don't think of each other as different in how you have come to be who you are, which he talks later about being kings and all this stuff. And, and you know, you're already rich and all of this kind of stuff. You don't need anything more to puff yourself up or to make you more important. Simply take what you have received and understand it as a gift from God. By grace, you have been saved through faith, not your own doing. And so take that and live like that. Haughtiness, being puffed up, anybody who is arrogant, those are things that the Holy Spirit has frequently inspired Paul to preach against. And those are also some of the major issues in this particular congregation. And maybe it's because they are you know, look out into the, con- they look out into the world, they look out of their window, as I like to say, and they see the metropolitan city of Corinth and they see all of these wealthy and successful people and they think to themselves, you know, I want to be like them. And so they try to make it happen in the context of their little congregation. And we see that even today, we see congregations where there are sometimes individuals, sometimes leaders, sometimes people on the fringe, but they're trying to make uh, the the church a place where they want to make a name for themselves. And yet Paul, whether speaking to us today or whether speaking to the Corinthian church, reminds us that it's not about what we offer to God. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what we offer to God to save us. It's about what we receive. And even when we use our gifts to serve the church, those are gifts that we were received from God. So even that we really can't take credit for. Absolutely. No, we can't. And, you know, um, for probably about 15 years, I worked as a synodical reconciler as well. And um, I will tell you that when I went into congregations, when I went into uh, uh, several situations, uh, the more I pointed out and the more I tried to encourage them, began to have a Christocentric look on themselves and on the ministry and a theocentric look on what God is doing in the world uh, and to get away from themselves a little bit more. Uh, in order to get a broader view of either what their conflict was was wrecking or what their uh, cooperation would uh, do produce, 
um, the more wow. I was able to uh, answer some of these questions, you know, uh, do you re- what do you really see different in this person than in yourself? And what do you, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? What, what kind of gifts are, are being operative in you um, that, that you should really be, uh, in, you know, um, growing in yourself and that sort of thing? So uh, every congregation, you know, will have the tensions that, that arise like that. Uh, but once we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that's what gets us moving in, in the direction that Paul's trying to lead the Corinthians here. I love these next verses, beginning with 8 through verse 13. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. We'll stop there with verse four or 13. Uh, they have become like the scum of the world. Back to eight. Already you have all you want. You become rich. But then the confusing phrase is, without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we could basically reign with you. That's a little difficult to understand. Help us understand that, Pastor. Well, I think that uh, if you think the whole, if you think of the whole uh, vocation of Paul as uh, the apostle of the Gentiles, which would never have been his idea that happened through a miraculous uh, intervention of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Acts 9. And, and so he, uh, he is trying to encourage them in the fact that um, what they have received from God, which makes that you have become kings. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, uh, take courage, little children, for it has pleased your father to give you the kingdom. As we associate ourselves with the Son of God, we associate ourselves with the kingdom of God. And so he, he, uh, the richness here is the richness of spirit. It's the richness of faith. Uh, and grace in Christ. And uh, he said, would, would that you would reign. And I think what he means here by the, by the reign that he's talking about is not the reign uh, of the, um, not the reign of the, uh, um, the, the uh, leadership that they might or might not have within the church, uh, but uh, the reign of Christ in them, the reign of the spirit working in them to bring out the faith and spread the gospel and, and to enhance their fellowship and to make them a closer entity in the body of Christ. And so their reign is to be a spiritual one, not one in the world. And, uh, and this, I think he says, uh, like men sent to death, he, he's giving the example of the apostles now. He said, look, we're bringing this gospel into the world, but how does the world receive us? They make a spectacle of us. Even before angels, as well as men, they make a, make a, a spectacle of us. They, uh, uh, and yet we're fools of Christ. That is, we, we allow ourselves to be put in the category of being fools, that, that is like clowns, if you will, or 
or even non-believers um, of, of what is really important in society, but we are wise in Christ. He, he would later say that the wisdom of God is Christ. And so then he goes through his list of things about how most of the apostles are living their life once they were thrown out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Um, and then, but he says, through all of this, through all of this, I know that we don't have a very high standard uh, of, uh, in the society. Society doesn't look on us like we're very much or very important. Uh, the word for scum there is what's left after you've uh, mucked out the toilet. I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's probably the, you know, wreck uses the other word. It's what you throw down the drain, you know, and that's how he's considered and how the apostles are considered. But their word has made the Corinthians rich and has made them kings uh, in the kingdom of God. Like he says in Romans that uh, we're heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. So that's what they've become. And despite how he may look to them or may look to the world, um, it doesn't matter to him. It's part of his not judging himself. Yeah, we see here a, a lot of rich irony coming from Paul. You know, he's really scolding them, I believe, in these first verses. You know, already you have all what you want. I don't see this, and you can disagree, but I don't see this as a, you know, I'm letting you know that you have everything you need in Christ. He's saying, here you are, a bunch of folks who think that you don't need anything else. Already you have all you want in an ironic sense. You know, already you've become rich. Without us, you would have become kings or you have become kings. You know, without us here, you've put yourself up. You want to be elevated to uh, these heights of power and influence right away in this life, right now. And that's why he sort of sarcastically says, and would that you did reign so that we could share the rule with you. And then he sets up how they, the people who actually do have the authority in the church, are living not as worldly kings, but as the scum of the earth, as you pointed out. But as you also so aptly pointed out, there is a reign coming, a spiritual reign. There is riches coming, but riches in Christ um, and they, the Corinthians, they didn't want these things in the future. They didn't want these things in the next life. They wanted them now. And even to some extent thought they already had them because of their position. They wanted to be, they wanted to be considered the uh, exalted Christians of Christendom. You know, the Corinthians were the good guys, but they needed a posture of humility. And it's a, it, it's one of the, this kind of idea or posture, as you said, that they're taking, it's one of the reasons for conflict. 60% of the population of Corinth, because of Sincrea, the, the port, seaport, uh, was slaves. So about 60% of the population is slaves. And, uh, and even the, we know the Christian congregation, they were also made up of slaves. Uh, and uh, when he comes to chapter 11, talks about, you know, your feast is not pleasing to God because you're eating while other people are going hungry. And yet they're all part of the same congregation. And, and so um, uh, this idea of the spiritual reign that they had includes everybody. It's not just because certain members in this congregation have status within the community, which, by the way, in all of the churches in which Jesus started, for the most part, there were men and women of status, both uh, Roman as uh, both Gentile as, uh, as well as, I mean, Roman Gentiles, Westerners, if you will, as well as Easterners. 
And that nonetheless, he says that we're all one in Christ. And we all have this one calling, this, this one life, this one uh, future, if you will, kingdom in Christ. And so um, in the context of Corinthians, that's an important thing, I think, to tell those that, you know, had tremendous, um, if you will, yost in society, while you have those who are still, you know, working in slave uh, labor in, in Corinth. So uh, I think it's important for him to point out that you're all kings. We're all rich in Christ. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's what makes this such an ironic text that he's accusing them of clinging to and seeking out world wisdom and world power and world riches, but they already had those things in Christ. If only they would turn and they would claim those, understand that those belong to them, then they could be satisfied. Then the divisions would not be as, um, as strong. I agree. Well, brother, we're up against a break, so let's pause for just a few moments and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Murdaugh and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We will see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches? where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors. What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend George Murdaugh, Pastor Emeritus, currently living and serving in Birmingham, Alabama. Pastor, before the break, we were just talking about the irony that was happening in verses 8 and following, and you wanted to emphasize that they do have uh, a reign. They have become rich. They are kings. These things, of course, are spiritual things, things that come to them because of the gifts of Christ. They can't boast in them, as Paul would say elsewhere. Uh, anything else you want to include before we add the f- the rest of the verses of our text for this morning? Uh, I don't have anything in, in particular other than to, to point out uh, that uh, the, the, the entire thing that is going on here um, is that uh, these Gentiles, um, uh, Christians, which are mainly, uh, probably, there may be some Jewish believers also amongst these people, but the Gentile Christians, uh, uh, status is very important. In the Roman Empire, there were very strict castes, and, um, and you didn't overstep those castes. And one of the most difficult thing I think in the church at the time of Paul was to blur those lines, to, to see that in the kingdom of God, there are no such lines. Uh, and um, he said, uh, you know, no male nor female, slave nor free, uh, Greek nor Gentile, anything. There's none of that. He said in Christ and in a strict caste system, which the Roman system had, uh, even within its own, uh, its own 
uh, imperial uh, court. Um, those kinds of things are difficult to overcome. Uh, I, I, I work in India, and one of the things that we always are having to deal with in India is that everyone in the Christian church is the same in Christ, no matter what caste they're in. And, uh, and I think that that's something else he's trying to point out here in these verses. Some of you may in fact be kings. Uh, in other words, uh, you may be of the highest caste, but the point of the matter remains, no matter who you are, if you're in Christ, you are all heirs of the same kingdom. I think that's very good background and color that we need to understand, especially insofar as just like today, people were seeking after status. And I know it's not the exact, it's not exactly like the caste system in India, but there is certainly a system of haves and haves nots, uh, people who want to identify themselves by either their vocation or what kind of car they drive or what they, what they do for a living. You know, these things are, are present even in our society too. And the way you're treated can often depend on the clothes you wear or what you look like. Sometimes even, uh, who you are and what you're, where you come from. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and as a matter of fact, it's you say clothes you wear, because in some areas, uh, people were not to dress differently from their vocation. Uh, if they were a carpenter, they're supposed to dress like one. If they're, a, you know, if they're a bootmaker, they're supposed to dress like one. Um, you know, and so people did, and this perdured into Europe for a long time. Uh, where if you had a, had a certain guild that you belonged to, you were dressed like that guild. And so these people just show up. If they just show up for a, for a service, people will already know by just how they dress, who they belong to, or what group they belong to. And, and so these things, are, are in, in, in essence, are sometimes difficult in our society to overcome. And certainly for, for the Corinthian society, which was a very eclectic society, had to overcome. With this in mind, you know, how does that help us interpret, you're going back just a little bit, when Paul is describing the, the way the, the apostles lived. Now, I'm sure if you're someone who is accustomed to thinking of people according to their status and their, and their authority, then the apostles certainly had the highest status and authority uh, on earth in the church. And so when he describes the life of the apostles and when he describes being poorly dressed in verse 11 and buffeted and homeless and, and laborers with their hands, things you don't associate with people of high influence and power. You know, how is that being received by the, these Corinthian Christians who may have really valued those things? Uh, yeah. Well, it would have been, there would have been, I think, societally and culturally, an automatic bias against such people. Uh, their, their education would be put into uh, question immediately. Uh, their, um, perhaps even their legal status. We know that Paul was in prison. He even often said concerning his, his uh, especially the Philippians, he said, I'm, I'm so glad you're not ashamed of me that I'm in prison, you know. Uh, because uh, people who people who he had described here, um, the society may say, "Well, they're getting that because of their of their status, or because what they have done or done wrong, lack of education, whatever that might be." Okay, they have that, and that was something that had to be overcome in, in the early Christian church. There was no monolithic church at this right. time. 
And, uh, and as a result of that, it wasn't just a, a church, a kind of church, maybe in Constantinople, maybe a church over in Rome that you could look at or one over in, in uh, Alexandria or something like that. There wasn't one. And so as a result of that, there was a lot of different ways in which the church was expressing itself. And uh, here in Corinth, uh, it's coming out of poverty. Of the, what, for the, the ones that are preaching are coming out of, uh, of a kind of a non-status among the elite in that community. Pastor, we only have eight more verses left in our reading for chapter four, and I want to go ahead and get them out on the table so that we can include these verses in our discussion. Starting with verse 14. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Well, that is our text, or at least the rest of our text for today. So Paul is talking about coming with a rod or with gentleness. There seems to be a warning toward the end of this chapter. But heading back up, he's discussing all of these issues as a father would discuss them with his dear child. Well, his, his argument here is that um, he establishes in 14 that this community, despite its difficulties, despite you know, what he's had to address with them, uh, is a community he loves. Uh, as far as he's concerned, they're beloved children. And why are they his children? They're his children because he birthed them in Christ. He was the one who brought the good news of Jesus Christ uh, into their lives, and, and they by the Spirit, resonated to that. Uh, and he says, although you had con- uh, <clears throat> excuse me, countless guides, the word for guide there, the same word for the slave who took care of the, the children, bringing them up in the household, the one who led them to whatever the uh, master of the household would have them do or be. And, and so you have, you have plenty of those. There are those who are giving great examples to you. Uh, Apollos was one of them. And uh, he said, uh, uh, but you, you don't have many fathers. First of all, he said, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So as far as, as birthing you, so to speak, into this relationship with Christ, which Paul never uh, meant for that to mean beyond the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He himself wrote that. So he understands that he was a father to them in, in bringing them along into this relationship with Christ and building them up in that, okay? And so he's asking him now, if I have done that, then imitate me. And that goes along with actually the word guide, if you use the, if you understand the Greek word for guide, the children were to imitate their guide, imitate the one that's teaching them, their teacher. Uh, so the master of the house would uh, take his children, he'd turn them over to teachers, um, uh, tutors, if you will. 
and they were to copy. The, the, the tutor was, of course, to do what the master wanted, and then they, the children, were to imitate the tutor, but really they were imitating the master because that's what the master wanted. And so he said, that is why I sent Timothy, who was one of his disciples, uh, Paul's disciple, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, he birthed in the Lord, if you will, to remind you of the ways of Christ. So no, he's not saying just me, but you, but you had the example of someone who actually took my uh, instruction, the one who actually was a disciple, uh, who, uh, who uh, uh, was mentored by me to give you an example as to how that works out in your life. And uh, so as I teach uh, them everything in every church. So this is his uh, pattern. If you look at all of Paul's missionary journeys, you look at the churches that he established, in each one of them, he set up elders. And uh, we know this because when he came back through Ephesus to head for Jerusalem, which was the last place he'd go before he was taken to Rome, um, it was the elders of the church in Ephesus that cried over him and prayed over him and blessed over him as he was going into Jerusalem. So he has raised up these kinds of people everywhere. And he's using Tim, Tim here, if you will, as his example of what that looks like. And he said, I think what he's trying to say, he says, imitators, you see someone who is an imitator, you can be that too. Um, ultimately imitating Christ, you know, that you may remain in the ways of Christ, not the ways of Paul or Cephas or Apollos or Timothy or anyone else, but in the ways of Christ. Paul uses this language of being a father elsewhere. It comes to mind immediately is Philemon when he talks about, um, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. In Galatians, he talks about that childbirth, that language that you used, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul really took his duty as an apostle and proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentiles quite seriously. But when he says you've had countless guides, or as you definitely brought out, and I'm thankful for you for doing that, you know, the Greek is a hippotropos, which would be for these types of slave tutors who would train up typically boys to be imitators of the masters. Um, yeah, so he says, you've had many of those in Christ. Those are good things, but I became your father. So, you know, growing up down south, and I bet you've heard this too, you know, you should call no man father, also from the scriptures, but then they use this language to indicate uh, typically it has a anti-Roman Catholic sentiment, to be honest, about the honorific father for priests, but it also gives this idea that only God should be your father. Uh, now, that's not a proper understanding of it necessarily, especially when it comes to calling, say, a priest father, but we do have here him saying, making a distinction that he's not a guide, he's not, you know, the epitropos, he is your father. Now, we know from elsewhere when he uses this language, he means it very sincerely and not in a haughty way, but how would they have heard that language of him being their father? Well, I think by, uh, by of course, uh, using the ideas countless guides, everybody would immediately, remain, as you know, think of the tutor of the children. I mean, that's, that's what they would think of when he uses the word. But as he uses that word with them, uh, they know that that person is a person who is taking his 
if you will, instructions on what to instruct the children in from the father of the household, from the master of the household, the father of the household. And Paul is saying here that he has become that for them. But of course, you know, God is his father and it is always in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, even when he talks about uh, people receiving the gospel, uh, he, he talks about that uh, in, um, I forget I forget right now the, the exact uh, place where he says it, um, but he says that uh, he, is, he is here. I mean, how will people hear the gospel if someone's sent? Uh, the apostles were specifically sent by the commission uh, we see that both in the first chapter of Acts, we see the end of Matthew's gospel. They were specifically sent into the world to bring this good news. Well, how's it going to do if somebody preach? And how can they preach unless they're sent? How can they be sent unless, you know, and how can people come to know this unless they hear it? And it's by the preaching of Christ, he says, by the preaching of Christ. So if he's a father, it's because he has preached Christ. If he's a father, it's because he was one of the sent to do that. In, in his case, according to Acts 9, specifically sent to the Gentiles, specifically sent to a congregation like Corinth in order that Christ be held up. Just as he says in Galatians, uh, you've left the gospel. When you, when I brought you the gospel, I, I, you saw Christ dis- betrayed, I mean, displayed as crucified. Uh, and he said, this is the gospel that I preached to you. Don't leave that gospel because he was concerned about his children in, in Galatia. And so he's concerned about his children in Corinth as well, that they don't uh, go away from uh, the Christ, that he, um, so he birthed in them this, this gospel, this good news by proclaiming it, proclaiming the word of Christ to them. Paul's love for these people as a father loves his children is evident in the verse just before, too. In verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Two things come to mind. Yeah, two things come to mind, though. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, except in just a couple chapters, he's going to actually begin, I say this to your shame. (laughs) Can it be that there's no one among you? wise enough, et cetera, et cetera. And then later in verse 15 or chapter 15, he'll say, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. I say this to your shame. So in he, in this early part of the letter, it seems that he's a little more fatherly as he gets more frustrated going through the letter. I think he drops that a little bit. And, and you know what? I like that. And here's why. Not only does it show the humanity of Paul, But as a father myself who loves his children and desires to admonish them, but not in ways that make them ashamed, I still get very frustrated, especially if they continue doing things in ways that aren't healthy for them or proper. And yeah, so to admonish you as my beloved children, but yeah, admonishment doesn't necessarily mean that you want to make the person feel bad. Admonishment leads to better behavior. So he doesn't want them to be ashamed, even though it does sound like he gets a little more uh, vivid later on in the text. Yeah. Yeah, I have a couple of boys. I, I raised a couple of boys uh, and a daughter. And uh, I, I would sometimes put my, uh, my arm around the boy 
one of my sons and I would say, this is, this is not what you learned. This is not what you've been taught, is it? Uh, this is not what I expect from you. You know it's not, don't you? And that's not shame, that's admonition. Because it's done with an arm around you, knowing that I accept you, knowing that I love you. But you need to know that you were taught better and you know better. And that if you're a little ashamed right now, that's okay. Uh, but uh, you need to know that, that you can do better. And uh, that's not what you were called to. And all that kind of stuff, that's how it turns out. You can never shame a child. Um, it's my opinion, and it's been the experts that think you cannot shame a child right. into the behavior you want. Right. It's not possible. You can't do that. You have to, you can admonish and love, make sure that love is there, make sure it's unconditional for them. And I can give the example, example as you can, having raised children, as any Christian parent can. Uh, and that's what Paul's trying to do here. If, if you're going to use that father child kind of relationship, he's kind of at this point putting his arms around them. And saying, look, look, this is not what you learned. This is not what I taught you. And yet, you know, you want to remain faithful. So my beloved faithful child in the Lord, that's what I want, uh, like Timothy is. And I want you to remain in the way of Christ as I teach you everything in every church. So I taught you better, and I know you can do better. And so let's, let's move in that direction. Okay, now some are arrogant, as he says in 18, as though I were not coming to you. Um, um, but he plans to come to them, and then he says, "Okay, did you not read those?" No, we verses read them yet? all, so they're I, all in play. <laughs> okay, okay. So, and I, but I'm, I will come to you. He said, and, I, and I'm going to come to you, and I don't want to talk. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to talk to these errant people, but but of their, uh, uh, but of their power. I don't, you know, I find out that uh, not the talk of these arrogant people with their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And what he means there is, you know, the word, of, the word said from your status, just because of your status, doesn't necessarily do the work of Christ. I mean, you can't just talk from your status and expect it to happen. There's got to be example, which he has already given of the apostles, which he has given of Timothy. There's got to be an example of one who exercise authority, he uses the word power here, authority that comes from God. But what do you wish? Shall I bring a rod? No, I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to come with the spirit of love and gentleness. By the way, gentleness is, of course, one of the fruits, uh, is the fruit of the spirit, uh, which we find in Galatians. So he said, no, I want you to know this gentleness. Uh, because you know, it's kind of like uh, when Luther said that, you know, that, that uh, condemnation of wrath is God's alien work. Uh, the rod is Paul's alien work. Uh, Paul doesn't want to be um, rebuking and admonishing all the time. He wants to be embracing them in the love of the Spirit and instructing him, kind of like he did with Philippians. And um, uh, he would rather that be the case for the Philippians because he loves them so much. Of course. I mean, Paul is the same one who in Galatians chapter 6 said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? Amen. So, so yeah, he has this desire to be gentle. But when he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love, as you said, he wants to do? Um, 
is coming with a rod on the table, though, for Paul? Is that within his authority to come and exercise punishment? Yeah, it is on the table. Um, he, you know, um, you know, he comes right out and says it. I mean, he, he said it in Galatians, too. He tells him in Galatians what he thinks about the Judaizers. And, uh, and then he, he also uh, um, makes the point in Second Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, uh, we don't have middle letter. They, they, they think there's a middle letter that came between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have that. It's not ex- in existence. It, it, at least we don't haven't found it yet. Uh, and, and so uh, in those two, if you put the two letters together, yeah, he does. He is willing to use the rod of, of, of um, admonition and the rod of condemnation even, uh, if necessary, so that they are able to... Um, return to the way of Christ, what he says, uh, my, the way in Christ. And it's interesting that, you know, says in Proverbs, spare the rod and spoil the child kind of thing. Uh, the point there being, uh, if, you, if you think of that particular text uh, in Proverbs, also being a spiritual reality and not just, you know, normal uh, everyday discipline of children, but of a, of a spiritual nature, uh, that it's law and gospel. Um, he will exercise law, uh, if that's what they need in order to bring them to a gospel in order for them to deeper understand the gospel. I kind of see that verse as a law and gospel verse, which you would prefer, uh, the gentleness of the gospel. Uh, but he's not afraid to use it. And, and you can't read Paul without seeing that he's not afraid to speak of his authority in Christ. You know, we, there may be a text in between that we don't have, but second Corinthians reveals a little bit about what might have happened after this letter. You know, spoiler alert, not to give it away, but in 2 Corinthians, the very first chapter, he says, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And he mentions it several times throughout the letter that he did not come for their benefit. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 2, verse 1 says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So it sounds like the Corinthians, at least in some ways, did not heed Paul's warning. And still, despite his authority, his desire is still for them to be led to the truth, you know, on their own via the gospel, not with not with having to exercise discipline. Although he certainly mm-hmm. can in his authority. Amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just that balance. It's that balance in law and gospel. It did it is both our reality and uh, and the way we exercise those uh, is always in the way of Christ. Um, you know, Christ had to admonish his disciples and his apostles to rebuke Peter. Uh, and so there are times when, when that does the work of the Spirit, uh, and, and that's important. In the last few minutes, brother, that we have of our program, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share a bit of gospel with our listeners. Maybe something that would not only benefit them, but maybe something in a form that they can share with their neighbor. Yeah. One thing about uh, about the good news about Jesus Christ is that uh, Christ is for everyone. Uh, it's not as though that uh, the message of the gospel or the message of Christ is just for Christians. We live in a very pluralistic world. And uh, in, in that world, not so much, it depends on, your, on the culture you're in, but in the United States, we, we like to pigeonhole things. And so uh, Christians have been pigeonholed. 
And so uh, it's all right for people to, to, to think, okay, you're a Christian. That's how you think. Uh, that's okay for you. It's not working for me. But the real gospel is, 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 a, is to bring Christ to people in, in usually about three different ways. One is to bring Christ to people by simply talking about Jesus, simply talking about who Jesus is, who he is to you, that sort of thing. The second thing is to make sure that lived out in your life or how you approach those people and how you live your life. They can see in you an actual walk in which you are walking with Christ. And then thirdly, how important it is for you personally to be attached to Jesus Christ and to be attached in a faith community. We call it a church or a congregation, what that might be, a small group or whatever that might be. That that is important also for your life in Jesus Christ to walk together with your brothers and sisters in that. And so I think that if, if we understand that we want people to resonate to the gospel, then we have to be, first of all, talking the gospel, and then secondly, living our lives like we believe the gospel, and thirdly, congregating and coming together to celebrate that gospel as a community. And I think when we do that, people do resonate to the church. And I've seen that in my ministry. I see that in our work in India. I see people doing that. They come to the church. You know, when COVID hit India, so many Hindus fled to their temples, and yet they were still getting sick. And many of them said, I don't understand this. Why don't our gods listen to us? And it was, an, it was a tremendous opportunity for the church to step up and, and to encourage them in Christ. And in fact, our mission hospital became a COVID center for helping people with COVID. So, um, you know, it's just mm -hmm. an amazing thing. They were, their, their gods just weren't answering. And, and, and suddenly they went to the place where they knew people actually believed and did what they said, what they preached about Jesus. Wow, what an amazing opportunity in the midst of things that are not going very good to be able to proclaim Christ. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend George Murdaugh, Pastor Emeritus, currently living and serving in Birmingham, Alabama. Pastor Murdaugh, thank you for being on the show. God bless you and thank you. I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we continue in 1 Corinthians with chapter 5. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word.